0: this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. Hi, everyone. Today, I talk with Paolo Gaudiano, the DEI data scientist. So how does a guy who studied aerospace engineering connect the dots to lead the field of simulation modeling to determine inclusion? As a college student, Paolo Gaudiano took a class on the cognitive functions of the brain, which led to a lifelong academic and professional interest in neural networks, AI, and statistical modeling. While working for ecosystems doing simulation modeling, Paolo had the opportunity to look at why inner-city kids in Baltimore dropped out of high school. The experience of working with these kids made Paolo realize how privileged he was as a white, cisgender male. He subsequently devoted his life's work to DEI, specifically looking at the issues of inclusion, which he believes most companies don't understand. Today, he combines academic research with both a nonprofit and for-profit company to advance the mission of improving DEIs in companies. So as a math minor and lifelong practitioner in the topic of DEI, I found Paolo's data-driven approach and his thinking on inclusion to be absolutely fascinating. Join me today as I talk to Paolo Gaudiano. So good morning, Paolo. How are you today?
1: Good morning, Liz. I'm doing very well. Thank you. How are you?
0: I'm great. And are you in the US or Italy today?
1: I am back in the US. I'm in New York City. I came back about two weeks ago and I have to say kind of missing Italy, but we'll be going back <laughs> there soon enough.
0: Good good thing. Okay. So before we get into your background, one of the things I find Really interesting, and I think it sets the context for the rest of your story. Is that you have you you run three things at the same time—a for-profit, a nonprofit, and academic work. So tell us why three at the same time, and how do you make that possible?
1: Well, it's funny because when people tell you one of the first things they tell you when you create a startup is that you have to focus, and investors will never, you know, and. In reality, the three entities are the reason why I decided to do three entities is a combination of the fact that I've, uh, you know, I'm I'm now old enough that I've actually had experiences in all three fields, and I really saw an opportunity to create synergies because essentially the academic work gives a combination of credibility, quite frankly, because being affiliated with the university gives people credibility, but it allows me to do some of the core research that would be very difficult to do in a more corporate or startup setting. The nonprofit is uh, because we recognize that a lot of the work that I'm doing really aims to make our society better, not just in terms of creating corporate DEI, but really in terms of understanding how diversity, equity and inclusion impact every aspect of society. And so that's really the kind of work that requires a nonprofit framework and a nonprofit mindset. And then finally, the startup, the for-profit startup, which is actually a public benefit corporation. So it's for-profit, but with a public benefit mission included in the bylaws, that one is really focusing specifically on corporate diversity equity and inclusion. The three of them really feed off of each other. And so even though it's it is a lot of work, it's a lot of extra juggling of things and keeping things in mind and just, you know, the sheer time that it takes, they really do benefit one another tremendously. For example, we were able to early on we were able to get a grant from a foundation through the nonprofit and we collaborated with the for-profit so essentially it helped to generate some revenues on the for-profit side. And then some of the work that we developed at the for-profit I was able to use to support some of the work in a academic grant by using some of the technology that we developed on the for-profit side and so on. So it really, it I think of it as a three-legged stool where all together I'm trying to create a field of diversity and inclusion research, and I need all three legs of the stool to make it stable and to be able to do the support that I need.
0: Yeah, and I think it's a really interesting model that I think some of the listeners are going to be interested in because we've had other people doing, I wouldn't say the same thing in, well you know, just trying to move up sort of a purposeful mission forward. And so as we we talk, I think this will give people some really interesting thoughts, you know, and how to set it up. So you had an interesting academic background, both as a student and professor, because I'm going to kind of go back. And I think you're the first person I've interviewed whose academic background is really the first chess move in a long play to get where you're at. So, a BS and MS in aerospace engineering, so I have a BS in aerospace engineering, but you didn't want to build rocket ships. What did you want to do with that? So, you went to Colorado. What were you going to do with that?
1: Yeah, and actually, so my undergraduate was actually, it was in the School of Engineering, but it was more, uh, it was applied math with a distributed engineering background, and I did start doing some aerospace work. What happened is that at the very tail end of my undergraduate, I took a course from the electrical engineering department and aerospace department joint that talked about the brain from an engineering perspective. This was kind of a brand new thing. It was uh, at the early, early, early days of neural networks. Well, the, the kind of the second phase of neural network in the in the 80s. And, um, and I found a professor in the aerospace department that was looking for somebody to help him. And so I was able to get into a master's in aerospace. So I continued my passion for aerospace engineering. I actually did some projects uh, we were trying to put a what was called the getaway special, uh, kind of an experimental can on, on the space shuttle. And we did it as a student team and, and you know, I presented work at conferences. Eventually, when the space shuttle uh, Challenger blew up, that kind of put an end to that particular line of work. But half of my work in my, in my master's degree was really in neuroscience and computational neuroscience doing neural networks. So then when I went to do my PhD in cognitive and neural systems at Boston University, it was really very interdisciplinary, which is my, my background really trained me. My interdisciplinary background was extremely useful because we were doing work that tried to understand how the brain works from a physiological perspective, how it affects people from a cognitive and psychological perspective, and then how can you take some of those ideas and apply them in the real world with an engineering and mathematical mindset. So it was a perfect blend of all of the things that I had been able to kind of cobble together through my undergraduate and master's degree. And then I carried that into the first part of my academic career when I became a professor at Boston University. And I was doing robotics, I was doing machine vision, but I was also studying memory and and, uh, attention and things of that sort. So it was really, I loved it. To me, it was like being a kid in a toy store where I could use a common set of tools and apply them across a variety of different areas that ranged from, you know, literally working with animals uh, and doing experiments and all the way to, you know, building better cameras
0: after you graduated with and had your degrees, did you go first to academia? And because you told me you also was always been an entrepreneur. So talk a little bit about that as well.
1: Uh, I was an entrepreneur from my earliest days. I mean, I remember as a kid, when I was uh, not even a teenager yet growing up in this little town called L'Aquila in the mountains, a friend of mine and I built a cage and we raised pigeons and then we would sell pigeons to people. <laughs> and then, and then uh, When I was uh, after doing my first year of college, I had just moved to the States and my parents had sent me money for my second year of college. I ended up taking that money and using it to start an auto body shop with a friend of mine. (laughs) And so, yeah, I, I loved working my, my first career, my dream career. When I was a kid, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a Marine biologist. I loved animals and I love the sea. When I got to be a teenager and I started school and started doing engineering, I wanted to be an automotive designer. I wanted to be like an engineer and actually design cars. And then I fell in love with the brain. And when I fell in love with the brain, it kind of turned me upside down, but it literally did. I had for about a year or so, I ran an auto body shop and I had been a, an auto mechanic for about a year in Rome before that. So I was doing a lot of work with cars. And so when I became a professor, I, so I, I got my PhD. I had this you know, I, I had this great opportunity to become a professor because at the time I had joined what was a graduate program, but not yet a department. They became a department the year that I graduated with my PhD. I was the first person to get a PhD there. And so they offered me to stay there as a professor, and I did. And I, uh, but very quickly, I figured out that as much as I love the academic research and the teaching, I was very entrepreneurial. I was getting a lot of grants, and then I started to do consulting for some companies. And I was given the opportunity to essentially head up a research lab in a company. And uh, and eventually, I after getting tenure, I decided that I I just, I just wanted to follow the call of the of the siren of entrepreneurship. And so I left academia to become a full-time entrepreneur.
0: And what was your first venture that you did?
1: My very first venture is I joined a company uh, called Artificial Life, which actually, for those that know Artificial Life, it was really more about just using simple AI. We were building chatbots. We were doing natural language processing and, and uh and,
0: and, and just to set context, when was this? Uh, this would have been
1: 1999.
0: Okay. Okay. So early days of Chatbox. Okay.
1: So this was actually, in fact, it kind of predated a lot of this was before anybody was really doing that. And uh, the, the founder was the German guy, kind of a visionary, a little bit crazy, but in a good way. And he wanted to build a large research center in Europe with a shape kind of molded after the Media Lab. And he asked me if I wanted to be chief scientist and run that. And so I saw an opportunity to to do that. And I decided, you know, I'm done with academia. I, I love the teaching. I didn't really like the lack of urgency and, and the lack of, it, it was almost, you know, doing applied work was almost a dirty work, at least in the, in the fields that I was in. And so I left and I, I joined that company, it was called Artificial Life. That lasted only about a year or so. I, I didn't like the way the company was run. I had some options that I was able to, to cash out. And then I started my own little consulting company, which was a terrible idea. <laughs> I tried to see if I could bring uh, American investors, to Italy to invest in small Italian technology startups which was already a bad idea because I didn't really know what I was doing and uh, it was a terrible idea because then the internet bubble burst and that left me completely high and dry exactly so well 2001 was then you know was when the world fell apart so I started that I started my own little company so I was with artificial life for one year 1999 I had been consulting with them for several years and then I started I was full time for one year and then in 2000 I started my own little company Uh, which fell apart in late 2001. And at that point, uh, a friend of mine, somebody that I'd met through my academic work, who was from France, uh, he had just started a company in Boston and that's where I was at the time. And so I I talked to him and and it sounded like an absolute perfect fit for me because it was looking at sort of the next level up from from neurons. It was really looking, instead of looking at neurons and, and cognition of individuals, it was looking at collective behavior in people. And uh, so looking at this idea of agent-based modeling, but so it was a perfect continuation of what I've been doing before, but it was applied to real business problems. And uh, the company was called Ecosystem, and he invited me to join. I became the chief technology officer and later I was president and, and essentially ran the company for a few years alongside him. And that was another one of those. I loved it because I was doing a million different things. We worked with clients that range from Fortune 500 companies, Global 1000, but also government agencies, also foundations. And that's where I had my first taste of uh, working indirectly in diversity and inclusion. We did a project for the the, uh, Kellogg Foundation in which we were working, trying to help uh, uh, underserved, underrepresented youth. Uh, They were especially what they were calling, I forget what the exact term was, but basically uh, youth that from inner cities, et cetera, that would drop out of high school. And how do you get those people into a meaningful career when every job out there, the first thing they ask you is, do you have a GED? and uh, and so we we had developed a simulation that helped to understand how their individual talents and skills, and not simply what's on their resume, could help them to succeed in different kinds of jobs. And I had the opportunity to work with a nonprofit in Baltimore that was doing some phenomenal work and I, and I had to, you know I got to meet some of these kids and it was just a, such an amazing experience to see these kids whose lives had been so, so different from mine, who had, you know, and made me realize, made me aware of, of the privilege that I came from. And, and it sort of helped me to understand some of the things that I had appreciated and understood in a very superficial way as a, as a human being. And so that was kind of my first experience with that, and that eventually was, I think, part of the founding reason why I got into diversity and inclusion a few years later.
0: Talk about, and maybe explain it in layman's terms, because you're going to segue into it with your companies. At that point you started, there was some connection or you were starting to draw correlations between looking at uh, data analytics and DE and diversity, equity, inclusion. And more from an organizational perspective. So tell me if I have that right. And, and what was the connection there that you started to see?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. The connection, and, and while I like, yes, in a way we fall under the rubric of data and uh, data and analytics, it's really a unique kind of analytics. And, and the reason why I draw me to, or the reason why I thought about applying it to diversity, equity and inclusion is that we are using a methodology that essentially allows you to retain information about, and and not only retain, but take into account information about individuals, their behaviors, their attitudes, their their reactions to things, and simultaneously understand what happens at the level of the whole organization. Or, and I say organization, but it could be a city, it could be a school, it could be a family, it could be drivers on a highway. So this methodology allows you to, to maintain both. And the way we do that is that we build these computer simulations that are literally like Sims games, where... You replicate the behaviors of individuals and then and their interactions. And then you let the computer simulation shows you what happens at the macroscopic level. Now, why is that interesting? And why does it relate to diversity and inclusion? Well, most of the data analytics processes out there, they use statistical methods. And statistical methods were designed specifically to hide detail about individuals and make you understand things at the population level. But that means that you lose all the details. So if I, I can tell you a statistic that only, you know, 3% of CEO, actually it's less than that. Only you know 3%, let's say, of, of executives in the in the American uh, industries are black women, and yet there are, you know, they represent a much larger chunk of the population. And you're left asking why? What is actually happening? And then on the other hand, you have these stories about the horrible things that happen to black women, the experiences that they have that are just so poignant. But it's very difficult to connect those two. How do you go from the individual stories to the and that's what that methodology that we have. Is designed exactly to do that because we can literally replicate what happens to every individual within an organization and see how their experiences and their interactions with each other and with their company leads to not only to their personal success or failure but also to what the entire company is doing one day i was uh, I, i had been personally very interested in diversity and inclusion i'm an immigrant now i am white cisgender heterosexual male And I'm an immigrant, but I'm an an immigrant from Europe. So that's really, that hardly counts as a disadvantage. But I, for personal reasons, I'd always been really intrigued and couldn't understand why all these disparities existed. And it really bothered me. And I always just think, gosh, it would be nice if I could find some way to bring my work into this. And then one day I was sitting in, you know, the umpteenth time that I got to a session on, you know, how do we get more black people into advertising or how do we get more people into engineering? And I was listening to these people's stories and I was listening to, they would say, oh, here's what happened to me. And it was just these poignant individual examples. And then when it came to solutions, they're like, oh, we need to change corporate America. We need to change the mindset. We need to change the education system. And there was this huge disconnect. It was like, how do you go from one to the other? And I literally had this light bulb that went off. And I thought, well, the simulations that I've been building might be able to capture that. I might be able to capture how the things that happen to individuals that relate to diversity, equity, and inclusion may impact the 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 success of organizations and the and the performance of organizations. And so I literally dropped everything. This was in late 2015. I spent about a year doing research, building simulations, proving to myself that I was onto something, and that was kind of the birth of my my new career, if you will.
0: So when you get a simulation back or when you do the simulations, let's say you're working for a company, how does the result of the simulation influence the Behavior or actions that a company might take? Can you give us an example?
1: Uh, yes, but I, I have to make a little bit of a clarification. What, the work that we actually do today with companies does not really involve the simulations, other than showing how the simulations can help you to see the nexus between what you do to your individual employees or what your individual employees experience and what happens to you as a whole company. Now, why is that the case? Well, because what happened is that uh, when I started doing this, I started to do a bit of consulting and we were pitching this to companies. And one day I had a company say, this simulation is amazing. So the simulation would show things like if you have a company that is perfectly uh, balanced between men and women, for example, and so it's 50-50 and you promote people fairly, it will stay 50-50 forever. But if you introduce a tiny bit of bias in the way that people are promoted, where you give men a leg up, and as I always used to say, you know, not that that ever happens in real companies, right? But what would happen in the simulation? And what you find is that lo and behold, if you just change one parameter, which is the probability of being promoted at each level, you end up with companies that look exactly what you see in real industry, where you get 80% men at the top, and then maybe like 70% at the manager level, and so on down, where in some industry, you actually have more women than men at the entry level, and yet you get this kind of pyramid shape. And we were able to literally match the data very accurately. So that was a way for us to show, look, the fact that you're doing something unfair to people is creating these incredible biases. So essentially, your inclusion is influencing your diversity. And so we had a company that came to us and said, I want you to take this simulation and replicate it, for you know, replicate my company. And what I realized is I can't do that because it's not enough to know how many black people, how many Hispanics, how many LGBTQ, how many women. I need to know what is their experience in your organization, how is that shaped by the other people in the organization? Because ultimately these experiences don't happen in a vacuum. It's not that the building says, oh, look, there's black people coming, let's close the doors. It's other people that are doing things. And so we had to take a step back and say, well, we need to measure the experiences that people have. And we need to understand how these experiences are different depending on your personal characteristics, on your identity traits. So we developed this way of collecting information in a very interactive way from people and as we did that the first couple of times, we're like, wow, we're measuring inclusion. We're essentially defining inclusion as really exclusion. It's about what are the things that are happening that make your experience different from somebody else? And, and we found this way of quantifying inclusion that completely revolutionizes the way that people think about their companies, because now they see that it's what actually happens on a day to day basis. That and then, and then the simulation just kind of shows you in a general sense how that impacts your organization, but it's really understanding what does it mean to be a lesbian black woman in your organization how is your experience different what is happening to you who is making that happen to you is it your managers is it the leadership is it policies is it your peers is it your suppliers you know your partners whatever the case might be and so that's what we do right now is we don't really use the simulation per se other than as an educational element but we go in and we measure inclusion for companies. We we essentially literally quantify that,
0: which is so interesting. Because you were telling me, really, diversity. You think about diversity as just sort of a static count, correct? Exactly. Exactly. How many black people you have? How many women you have? Right. And equity is more of a sort of what the outcome is. Exactly. Yeah. In a nutshell. And on the inclusion side, so if you if you're able to look at that and and see what the Experiences are of people, are you able then to make recommendations to organizations about what needs to change?
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, as, as I like to say, as you pointed out, yes, in a way, inclusion is, is, is about what you do, it's about actions and behaviors. Diversity, if you think about it, it's a snapshot, right? It's, it, and when people try to force diversity by recruiting diversity, we think that's a big mistake because if you, you can hire all the people that you want from diverse backgrounds, but if they're not welcome, they're going to leave. And in fact, we see this all the time. When, with, the, with inclusion, one of the things that's very cool is that we're not, there are many companies that claim to measure inclusion and they do, but what they tend to measure is the feeling of inclusion. They will ask things like, how included do you feel? Do you feel that your company has an inclusive culture? The problem is that those don't really tell you why you may feel included at a level of you know, seven out of 10. Because your feeling of inclusion, your sense of belonging, is the result of everything that happens to you in the workplace, day in and day out. Instead, what we do is we, we ask about behaviors and experiences. And because of that, we can go back and we, can, and we have this categorization system where we, we ask people to say, is it about career? Is it about compensation? Is it about your interaction with your colleagues? Is it about your, uh, your work-life balance? And then by letting the data tell us where there are the biggest disparities, we can go back and we can say things like, hey, we find that in your company, the experience of women relative to men is like three times worse. They have three times as many problems as men. And a lot of the problems happen to be related to the way that meetings are held because women tend to be excluded from meetings and because they complain about constantly being interrupted whenever they speak to your meetings. When you get that level of granularity, you can say, okay, here's what you should do. Create a program. First of all, tell your managers to keep a list of everybody that should be invited to every meeting and make sure that, because a lot of times what happens is that it's inadvertent, right? It's those unconscious biases. It's, oh yeah, I'm going to invite, hey, right, let's get John and David and Mark. And it's like, all of a sudden Lisa and you know whoever is, is not getting invited, right? And that's, And so that's one example, right? Or maybe we can say, here's a very simple technique during the meetings, keep track of who's talking. And if you see that certain people are interrupting, et cetera, you need to step in and you need to do something about it. So that would be a very, you know, but other examples might be, hey, we're finding that this particular group of people, uh, maybe people of color are complaining way more about career opportunities. And it turns out that your promotion process is, again, we find that, hey, lo and behold, your promotion your, your performance reviews are done qualitatively by managers, which allows their unconscious bias to creep in and that's creating the outcome is that you're promoting white people at a much faster rate than people of color. And so now you need to basically review the way that you're doing or change the way that you're doing you know promotions and performance reviews to make sure that you're ruining that bias. So we, we can give really, really granular advice and you know honestly we're a bit skeptical about the like the whole unconscious bias training, for two reasons. One of them is that we live as human beings because of our biases. You know, biases are, and having studied cog, you know, both cognitive science and, and psychology, they don't just depend, it's like you need to look at something and be able to say, this is a chair, right? So anything that has four legs, you know, you can look at a weird chair, recognize it as a chair. Why is that? Well, because we have a bias because we categorize things as chairs. So our brain automatically, when you see, when you see someone whose skin is darker, unfortunately, our brain instantly kind of distinguish some of that criteria and says, you're a different person from me. You can't fix that. You cannot change that, right? But what you can do is you can make sure that your decisions are not going to be able to influence the experience of that person because of their skin color. And that really takes two things. It takes an awareness on your part of the fact that this bias may exist, but more importantly, it takes your company not allowing those kinds of biases to actually ripple through the organization. So how do you do that? Well, you create processes and you look for any way that subjective biases can potentially taint the process. And you would be surprised how often we do that inadvertently. Like, for example, hey, we're going to hire from Ivy League schools. Well, guess what? If you hire from Ivy League schools, you're introducing a bias in the process because Ivy League schools tend to be very homogeneous. Or... I'm going to hire, I'm going to use this recruiting firm, but it turns out that the recruiting firm is mostly white people, well, clearly they're not going to know where to look for candidates from a different background, and they're not going to know how to evaluate them, right? So there are a lot of ways that biases can creep into your processes. We can pinpoint where those are actually making an impact, and then you can go back and say, aha, this is the problem. But now it's no longer, oh, my problem is that Black people have a lower level of of uh, belonging than white people because that doesn't really tell you anything. It's like, duh, we know because they're leading roles, right?
0: Over the last couple of years, since the racial reckoning that's gone on with the the death of George Floyd, have you seen companies embrace your notion of inclusion more? And have you seen forward progress? So, you know, over the last few years, have things gotten better?
1: I would say yes and no. I think certainly the the ge- there's been a general increase in the demand for solutions. The problem is that there has been a huge boom in the number of people offering a staggeringly wide range of services. And the problem is that because there are no standards, because there is no uh, you know organizing body or regulatory body, what's happening is that companies don't know where to turn. And, and to be very candid, the quality of the services that are being offered varies dramatically. I mean, this is true every time that there is a, it's a bit of a bubble. And every time that you see a bubble of any sort, this is a problem that you have that you, you know, you go through the, and it's a necessary process because you want to essentially like create a lot of variety. And then over time, what's going to happen is that things are going to get weeded out and you're going to have some of the best of breed are going to survive. So on the one hand, there's been more interest. On the other hand, it's been challenging to, kind of keep above the noise level and, and having people recognize it. Now, what I can tell you is that because we started to do this, well, we started to do this before George Floyd, and we already had a couple of clients that had worked with us. We got a lot of word of mouth recommendations. We had a lot of people that heard about what we were doing. And and they when they see the quantitative aspect of it, and in particular, when they see that we're moving beyond just calculating diversity and representation, there is a lot of interest in that. And so we've been Fortunate, but I have to say it's a bit concerning because I'm seeing we're starting to see backlash. We're starting to see companies that are using coded language like, oh, you know, it's time that we get back to our core mission now, you know. And, and when you hear things like that, it's like, okay, that, you know, and, and you hear people more blatantly saying things like, oh, you know, I'm a white man and I'm being discriminated against because I'm white. You know, I didn't get promoted because they had to do a diversity hire. And, and these things are. Those are flawed arguments, but they're very easy to fall victim to those arguments. And we're starting to see a lot of that. So it's a bit concerning. And our only hope is that by focusing on, our target are white, male, heterosexual, cisgender leaders of companies that need to understand two things. One, how the lack of diversity and inclusion is negatively impacting their organization. And two, how increasing the level of inclusion is going to help them to create not only a more diverse organization, but one that performs at a superior level.
0: I want to go back now to the beginning, which is your interesting sort of third act, which again, it's probably like your third of 20 acts. So now you have have three things that you're doing to do this. The social benefit corporation, you're doing some academic work, and you're doing the nonprofit. So now that we have a better understanding of what you're doing, talk about how those three things now weave together to move the ball forward.
1: The for-profit came first, but the academic side came shortly thereafter, because from my past experience with ecosystem with, with other companies, I recognized that it's impossible to create a product company that is also a research company. And so I knew that there was a need to have some way of doing core research that would not be tied to corporate interests, that would not be, you know, focusing on let's get the next client and let's finish the product for them. So I, I teamed up with, with an amazing, amazing woman, uh, Dr. Gilda verbino who at the time was the Dean of the School of Engineering at City College of New York, and is now the president of Olden College of Engineering in Massachusetts. And uh, we hit it off immediately. And, uh, you know, she being an engineer, being a black woman, being one of the most distinguished people I've ever known. I mean, this woman is in the National Academy of Engineering. She's gotten presidential awards. She's the current president of the AAAS, which is one of the most distinguished organizations in science. And as a black woman, she's like one of the only in like so many different areas. Right. And so... We teamed up and we, we, got a, we got some funding from the National Science Foundation. We started to organize an annual conference and uh, we created this small uh, research lab. And, uh, and then when she left to move to Olin, I've kind of shifted now, I'm more uh, affiliated with New York University. But really it's about creating an academic field. So we have a large conference that we do every year called the Diversity and Inclusion Research Conference. This year we're expanding it to be more ongoing webinars rather than just like one single event but there is the combination of creating the credibility of a field and doing the core research. So that was the academic side. The for-profit came a little bit later when we realized that we were focused initially on corporate DEI, but it became very apparent very quickly that diversity, and inclusion is something that is ubiquitous. And what I mean by that is there is virtually no area of society that I can think of in which the color of your skin your gender your sexual orientation you're having a, a disability or not does not impact your outcomes you know in other words to put that turn around your personal characteristics influence everything that you do in life every single thing that you do in life from healthcare nutrition safety transportation housing every area needs a methodology in my opinion to quantify the link between individual experiences and outcomes Right, so when we talk about root causes and we look at societal disparities, we are basically looking at the output of the system. We're saying as a result of things that we don't understand, black people have their wealth level is a tiny fraction of the wealth level of white people. Why the hell does that happen, right? And then if you can start to think about using our computer simulations and our research to get to the root causes and start to understand how specific things that are happening whether it's education, whether it's housing, whether it's uh, you know transportation, et cetera. So I saw an opportunity to apply the same methodology to address a much broader set of problems, but ones that are not necessarily things that you can go and ask a company to pay for it. But they're more the kinds of things that either a government agency or a foundation may support. And, and a nonprofit structure seemed to make a lot more sense for that. And in fact, in, in particular, we had an opportunity to work with the Kauffman Foundation to start to look at entrepreneurship. And entrepreneurship is the economic engine of our society and there is evidence that it's becoming increasingly homogeneous and that there are increasing disparities between you know certain, between groups of people so if you're a white man it's much easier to become an entrepreneur and it's much easier to get funding and it's much easier to be successful than if you're let's say a black woman why is that the case
0: that's been going on for years though right
1: yeah but it's a, there's evidence that it's getting worse it's getting worse we uh, applied for and received the grant from the Kauffman Foundation to study that. In fact, we ended up getting two separate grants from the Kauffman Foundation. One of them was more to study the problem and the other one was more to educate startup entrepreneurs about the value of diversity and inclusion. And, and to take advantage of those grants, it really made a lot more sense to be set up as a nonprofit than a for-profit. And so that was, that was part of the tactical motivation for creating a nonprofit at that particular time. So we, we incorporated the nonprofit, the for-profit in 2017, and then we and I say we because I have a team of co-founders, and then we incorporated the the, the nonprofit in 2018, and then we got the 501c3 uh, certification from the IRS in early 2019, and uh, and that's ARC, and now ARC is also the one that's coordinating the co- the annual conference in conjunction with New York University.
0: And then Illyria is doing what? The, that's the social benefit.
1: That's doing the corporate. Uh, the corporate right now. The the focus is 100% on measuring inclusion. In the long term, I can see us becoming a, a platform that is really more of an end-to-end strategic planning platform for diversity and inclusion. Now it's really you know, we were we started that way, but then we realized we're building this. You know, we're building a space station for people that are still riding their bicycles down on Earth, right? And so when we saw that a very big missing step was measuring inclusion and we realized that there is a huge need for a solution that measures inclusion we started to focus on that and i can see that in you know maybe 5 years we will will be able to get to a point where we're expanding that and building the simulation into it and actually turning into and kind of an end-to-end strategic platform but right now companies frankly are not ready for that yet they, they they're still struggling with you know oh what is the business case for diversity which i dislike that very notion because what is the business case for being homogeneous you know, tell me any, I mean, if you think about it, right. I mean, think about, uh, you know, in finance portfolio management, what do you do? You diversify your assets to maximize your and in marketing, like programmatic advertising helps you to diversify your marketing assets to maximize sales inventory. You know, we do optimization and diversification of everything. But when it comes to people, we're like, oh, yeah, homogeneous is fine. And like, what the hell? It's like on why would there be any reason to think that homogeneous company is going to be the best configuration possible? I mean, it's so blindingly obvious that that's not the right way to do it. But the problem is that we haven't had tools to help us quantify the value of being more diverse. So that's essentially what we're trying to build in the long term is a portfolio management tool for your human capital, diversify your human capital.
0: When I was working at Accenture because we were, you know, when I was coming up really focused on women because there were so few and I used, to, I used to say to the guys, like, why wouldn't we, you know, we, we're we pulling the best people, right, ostensibly to work at Accenture, but we're leaving out 50% of the population by not considering, our you know, women, you know, as, as part of that. And I said, you don't think that there'd be some superstars in that whole group. So wouldn't that be a competitive advantage to pull from that pool as well? I mean, it was just like so freaking obvious, right? So dumb.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. And it, and that's just the beginning of it, right? Because there's a, there's a supply and demand issue, right? I mean, if, if you shrink your supply, then you're going to pay more money and you're going to have to scrape the bottom of the barrel to get, you know, and you're going to end up with with lower quality talent. It's just, it's unless you believe firmly that men are vastly superior to women, then, and if you believe that, then, you know, I, okay, whatever, you got a problem, but that's it. But even if, but unless you believe that, then it makes no sense. It makes no sense because it's like, why, and same thing with people of color, same thing with people with disabilities, same thing with people with different sexual orientations, unless you believe that there is a, a unique superiority, then you're crazy because you're basically leaving untapped talent, which means that you're gonna end up paying more for the talent and you're gonna get le- and you're gonna get lower quality. There is like there is no two ways about it. I can you know I can prove that mathematically. So.
0: So the three things intersect. I totally understand why you're doing it. As you look forward, where do you see yourself headed in the next five years?
1: Uh, you know, I wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe headed headed back to Italy and you know take a bit of a vacation. Sometimes I, I'd like to do that. No, but no, I I think. Right now we are hitting uh, an inflection point at Alaria on the for-profit side. We we were accepted a few months ago into the Techstars Equitech accelerator, which is you if, if your listeners may be familiar with TechStars, it's one of the largest and most well-known accelerators. Equitech is one of the accelerators that was just started this year for the first time that looks at companies that are using technology to address issues of equality, diversity, inclusion, et cetera. We were fortunate to be selected in, you know, for the for the founding cohort. My two co-founders uh, Lisa Russell and Urshia Malik are actually in Baltimore as we speak, getting ready for demo day for that. That was phenomenal. And, and as a result of that, we've, be, we've gotten some investments already. We're actually going to be getting, we're going to be doing a substantial round in a few months. That's really going to help us to create a, a much better platform that is much more scalable and, and to move from what right now is essentially technology assistant consulting, if you will. We have a technology platform, but there's a lot of consulting behind it. We want to move to a model where, yeah, there's always going to be a bit of consulting because you have to do that, but we want to build kind of a recurrent revenue model where you basically have a platform that will allow you to measure inclusion in real time all the time so that you can actually see how the initiatives that you're implementing have an immediate impact on your organization. And uh, so that's where we're going with uh, My My expectation is that we're going to grow pretty crazily for the next two years. Well, really for the next year, it's going to be, it should be pretty rapid growth. And then eventually, as I said, we want to standardize what we do and eventually move into more and more strategic level capabilities with a platform. On the nonprofit side, it's been a bit of a struggle trying to find a balance between not getting scattered and, and focusing on one thing. So there is a there are a couple of projects that we're working on, and most of them right now really focus on entrepreneurship, because that's where we had success early on. And that's because we think that there are so many really, really important problems that have to be solved on the entrepreneurship side. So, so right now we're, we're continuing kind of the educational series that we started. There is a lot of interest in that from startups and accelerators and incubators, et cetera. And we're also looking at developing a platform to standardize the collection, management, and sharing of DEI data from entrepreneurs. We think that's a huge problem is that right now there is no standard way of asking people about DI questions in entrepreneurship. So if you ask 10 venture capital firms or 10 accelerators what data they collect, you're gonna get 10 different answers. And by the way, five of them will say, we don't collect any data, right? So so that's on the on the nonprofit side. On the academic side, that's been kind of the, I, I've been dreaming about having the time to teach a course on these topics. And actually I may have an opportunity to do that at NYU next year, uh, you know, remains to be seen. And, and, you know, we have this conference that we have these webinars that we organize so that's right now. I've I've sort of lowered my level of activity on the academic side just because it's been insane managing the other two sides of things.
0: I was going to say, is it because you need to sleep or or? Yeah,
1: yeah, and I it's it's a little bit of that. But I but I'm hoping you know right now it's the three legged stool has been has felt more like a roller coaster where it's like oh one of them is doing great the other ones are kind of dormant and then and it's been kind of up and down. But I'm hoping that in the long term as things get stable and independent and require less and less of my focus, which already, by the way, my two co-founders at Alaria are amazing and and they're really doing the bulk of the work right now. I mean, I'm I'm very heavily involved and I'm getting more involved now because of the particular time that we're in. But my goal is to get to the point where each of these entities, there's actually teams of people doing things so that it becomes very stable and self-sustaining independently. And that will hopefully give me more time to, frankly, to play and do what I like doing. You know, I like doing the research and I like coming up with the ideas I am not nearly as excited about or as good at kind of organizing, planning, structuring. You know, that's not really my forte. I don't, don't like that very much.
0: So I almost titled this podcast, I'm Not Done Yet, because this is the way I feel about things. So what aren't you done with yet?
1: I've been a serial entrepreneur since 1999. And well, technically, I was a bit of an entrepreneur before that. I've been involved with five or six startups in various roles. I have never had a really like a successful exit. And it's not just for the money. I mean, that money would be really nice, but I have yet to achieve that sense of, I've done something really amazing that got external validation where I'm clearly creating value for society. And so I would say my biggest ambition is to get Alaria to the point where it is a really successful self-sustaining large organization i want to see that happen i think that that's that's one piece that i would be dissatisfied if that didn't happen and then you know beyond that i'm cursed with ideas i i have so (laughs) many ideas that i
0: cursed with ideas okay yeah i have to
1: say i'm a little bit disappointed that you know i'm almost 60 uh, i'm turning 60 this year and i thought that by now i would be in a position where i would have enough of a financial and and other kinds of stability to just be able to kind of play, have an Idea Lab, you know, like literally there was a company called Idea Lab a number of years ago. I think it probably still exists. And I I kind of envy that. I would like to be in a situation where I can just play with ideas and have support and teams where I can say, let me take the new, you know, the core of an idea, let's shape it a little bit together, and then you go off and run with it. That would be my my dream. You know, that, that's what I want to do in my retirement.
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, Got it. Okay. Well, we'll check back with you. So your work is so fascinating and clearly making a difference, and I know our audience is going to love the story and want to find out more. So, in addition to your LinkedIn, where else can we find out about your work? And we'll publish it in the show notes. Uh,
1: the best place would be so Alaria. T E C H is uh, is the website for Alaria, and I and I recommend people go there. There's always and that's being maintained by other people, which means that it's probably always up to date. <laughs> uh, then there is aleriaresearch.org. Aleriar Research, and when we created Arc, we had the, the, it was my fault. I take full blame for the fact that I had this brilliant idea of calling it Al- aleria Research. And then because of the way when you incorporate in New York, you have to use Corp at the end or Inc. And so it's like, okay, aleria Research Corporation. And initially the the similarity in the names confused a hell out lot of people. So now we just call it Arc because they're two completely separate entities. I mean, yes, we collaborate, but they're completely separate entities. And so, but but the website unfortunately, you know, arc.org was already taken, so we have aleriaresearch.org for the nonprofit. We have a website for the academic stuff, but that's really kind of outdated, so I would almost rather not share it. The last thing is that if you go to Forbes, and I've not written for Forbes in about 4 months because of personal reasons, but I'm going to start writing again very soon, but I've written probably 100 blogs for Forbes in the last 4 years. And uh, so if you just go to Forbes.com and you look up my name, Gaudiano, there's not that many Gaudianos writing for Forbes. Actually, there's there's only one.
0: Got it. We'll put the link in there too. So thank you so much for being on the show and for all the great work you're doing. Thank you,
1: Liz. It's been a real pleasure, quite an honor to be part of the, of the podcast, and I look forward to speaking with you again.
0: Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act Podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.